Chapter 6 of The Boy Scouts on Lost Trail by Thornton W. Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6 Spud Christens His Shoes. As soon as they were fairly in the woods, Upton resigned the lead to Pat, to whom the trail as far as Smuggler's Hollow was familiar. This was the immediate objective point, for it had been pretty well established by further search of records that the trail to this point was a part of the original Bloody Scalp Trail, and that beyond this would begin the real work of locating the old line of march. According to Pat, there was good hunting and fishing in the country around Smuggler's Hollow, and so it had been decided to reach there as soon as possible and make it headquarters until the trail beyond could be worked out, or, in the event of failure, it became necessary to push on in order to deliver the message. Allowing twenty miles a day, it would take the better part of two days to make the hollow. For the first ten miles, the trail was well-worn lumber road, and Pat set a pace that put the others on their mettle, for the long swinging stride of the woodsman, rolling at the hips and toes pointing straight ahead, was natural to him. By constant practice, Walter had acquired this gait, which is a wonderful ground-gainer and is the natural gait of the Indian. The foot is set down almost flat, and the walker is never off balance. It reduces to a minimum the danger of stumbling and is one of the secrets of still hunting. It was because of this habit of walking with his toes pointing in a straight line forward instead of turning out that a war party of redskins could, without effort, step exactly in the footprints of the leader, leaving but a single trail. Hal, Plimpton, and Spud had not acquired the art, and they soon found that they were fairly put to it to keep up with the leaders. Spud was rear guard. He was the heaviest in build, with the exception of Pat, rather given the stoutness, and before they had covered five miles he was beginning to puff. Moreover, he was becoming conscious of the weight of those new shoes. The fact is, though he would not admit it to himself, they were beginning to hurt his feet, in the effort to ease them a little, he unconsciously slackened his pace, so that he soon fell behind. At the point where the smuggler's hollow trail left the wagon road, a halt was called for a rest and lunch. The others had a fifteen minutes' rest before Spud came in sight. He looked hot and weary, but he grinned good-naturedly at the banter of his companions as he swung his pack from his shoulders and with an audible sigh dropped down beside them. "'How are the seven-league boots?' asked Hal. Great. I tell you, you fellows are going to turn green with envy before this trip is over, replied Spud promptly and enthusiastically. Walter glanced at him suspiciously. It seemed to him that the enthusiasm was a trifle forced, a wee bit overdone. Shoes hurt you any? he inquired. No. That is no more than any new shoes would. They're a little stiff yet, but that's no more than I expected, replied Spud who was too honest to deny flatly that they were giving him trouble, and would not for the world have admitted that for the last mile his feet had ached so that every step was an effort. "'How much farther do we go today?' "'About ten miles more,' replied Pat. "'We leave the wagon road here and take an old trapper's trail up to Little Goose Pond, or we'll be after spending the night. "'There's a fair trail, but a little blind in places. "'I blazed it the last time I was over it. "'and tis not hard to follow. "'Twill be best for each one to keep the one in front in sight. "'It should be easy to make the pond by three o'clock, "'and that will give us time to get some fish for supper "'and maybe a rabbit or a grouse or two. 
The mere mention of such a possibility was enough to drive all thought of his feet from Spud's head, for eating was the joy of his life, as his companions were well aware. Besides, he was anxious to prove his prowess with the rifle. He never had had a chance to do much hunting, and now that the opportunity offered, he was eager to take advantage of it. Well, let's start right along, fellows, he exclaimed eagerly. What are we wasting time here for? The sooner we make camp, the sooner we can have some fun and a square meal. I'll give you the finest broad grouse you ever set your teeth in. Have you put salt on their tails that you're so sure of them? asked Pat dryly. Oh, we'll get some. This is the first day of the open season, and they won't be wild, replied Spud confidently. Wait till you see me shoot the heads off a few. Come on, let's be moving. Walter smiled at Spun's confidence and enthusiasm, but he gave the order to fall in. Packs were soon adjusted, and once more they hit the trail, Spud again bringing up the rear. The going was now very different, a barely discernible path, and the boys soon realized the wisdom of Pat's advice to keep the one in front always in sight. To Pat, the following of such a trail was second nature, mere child's play. His keen eyes running from blaze to blaze without conscious effort, despite the fact that some of the blazes were so old that they appeared as hardly noticeable scars on the tree trunks. To Walter, the task was only a trifle more difficult, for he had had considerable experience in his two former trips in the woods, and besides, had faithfully practiced trail following around Woodcraft Camp during the three summers he had spent there. But to the others who lacked experience, the task would soon have proved impossible had they been alone. Despite their best efforts, they would frequently miss an obscure blaze. They soon gave up trying, and were content to watch their footing, and keep the one in front always in sight. For the first few miles, Spud kept up manfully, although by this time his shoes were hurting unmercifully. Both were slipping at the heel, to say nothing of the way they cramped his toes. But he was game and there was no hint of the misery in his cheerful responses to the occasional shouts to the rear guard from those ahead. The trail now began to ascend a spur of a mountain, and became rougher with occasional patches of bare rock. To his surprise, Spud found that in such places the steel hobnails in which he had taken such pride frequently proved his undoing. The points soon wore smooth, and he could get no grip on the hard rock with the result that he was constantly slipping, and once, where the trail dipped sharply just after crossing the spur, he fell heavily. It knocked the wind out of him for a moment and skinned one shin. For a few minutes he sat where he fell to take account of damages. Then, finding that there was nothing serious, he struggled to his feet, and, muttering maledictions on his own pig-headedness for not heeding the advice of the others and leaving the shoes behind, started on. Now it happened that just beyond the point of Spud's mishap the trail turned abruptly to the right, and Plimpton, who was next to the rear, had made the turn just before Spud fell, and so was unaware of the latter's mishap. He had shouted at the turn, as he had of each of the others when they made it, and hearing Spud's exclamation when he slipped had taken it for a reply and given the matter no further thought. Spud, his mind occupied with his troubles, gave no heed to the trail. He took it for granted that it continued straight ahead, and plunged onward in an effort to overtake the others. Meanwhile, Pat, with the prospect of camp only a couple of miles ahead, had unconsciously accelerated the pace. The result was that by the time the unfortunate rear guard discovered that he was off the trail, the others were a good half-mile away and saving their breath in order to keep up. 
Now, of course, the thing for Spud to have done was to have stopped the instant he found that he was astray and yelled for his companions. But he was chagrined at his predicament and ashamed to let the others know that he had been so poor a woodsman as to overrun the trail. So instead of using his lungs, he made up his mind that he would find the trail himself. I can't be far off, he muttered, and if I make a little circle around, I'll be sure to hit it. Then I'll hike it double quick if it kills me. He looked down ruefully at his heavy shoes and made a comical grimace. Then he turned to look up the slope down which he had just plunged. Somehow the thought of climbing back up that steep grade was anything but inspiring. What's the use? he muttered. The trail must come down here somewhere, and I'll find it quicker by looking around down here than by wasting time climbing way back up there. Now this was poor Scoutcraft, but a mistake that many other had made before him. He could have retraced his steps, for the imprint of those hobnails would have been easy to follow. But he chose what he believed to be an easier course, one which would at least be easier on his feet, and boldly struck out studying the trees for blazes. He had completed half a circle of considerable radius when he spied an old scar on the side of a big spruce. Siding from this he saw another, and beyond this a third. I thought so, he grunted. Trust the little sunshine maker to take care of himself. They may have a laugh on me for falling behind, but they won't have a chance to give me the merry ha-ha for getting lost. With that he hurried forward, warily studying the trees for the tell-tale blazes. Now it was mere chance, and also his misfortune, that Spud had stumbled on an old trail made many years before by gatherers of spruce gum, and it was leading him in a direction directly opposite to the one his companions were pushing along so rapidly. At the end of something less than a mile it ended in an old lumber cutting which years before had been burned over and now was a tangle of young growth and raspberry canes hiding charred stumps against which he stumbled and barked his shins. After floundering through this for a little way, he realized that beyond all question he was lost. He couldn't even relocate the trail that had led him there. He found a fallen log and sat down to think it over. He was hot, he was tired, his feet felt as if the skin was off of both his heels and all his toes, and he was lost in a lumber slash miles from anywhere with which he was familiar. It was time to sit down and think. One thing Spud did possess which was likely to take him through more trying situations than the one in which he was now placed, and this was an irrepressible sense of humor. It cropped out now despite his discomfort and the uncertainty of his prospects, and he grinned as he thought of the unmerciful chafing he would come in for if it ever leaked out at camp that he had got lost on the very first day out. But the grin ended in a wry face as he lifted one foot in an attempt to ease it, a pretty scout you are, Spud Eli, he muttered. Kill your feet and lose yourself before you're fairly started. Now what are you going to do about it? Obviously the thing to do was to do nothing. That is so far as trying to find a trail was concerned. And he was wise enough to know it. Moreover, there was in his happy-go-lucky, fun-loving nature a good-sized bump of common sense. He was not of the panicky kind. He might get into trouble through carelessness, but once in trouble he was not of the kind to make matters worse by losing his head. He had learned his lesson three years before, when he had spent a night in the woods with Billy Buxby. Then he had lost his head, but the lesson Billy had taught him then he had never forgotten, 
and he resolved to employ now the same tactics Billy had employed then, namely, to let the others find him instead of trying to find them. They'll miss me before long, probably have by this time, and then Pat will back trail till he finds the place where I overran. I guess he won't have much trouble following these hobnail prints of mine, so all I've got to do is to be good and sit still till I'm found. Hello, what's that? He looked sharply toward a patch of briars in which a slight rustle had caught his attention. Presently he made out bright, inquisitive eyes peering at him. A cottontail, he exclaimed under his breath. Maybe this is where I can make good on that dinner the boys are likely to be kept waiting for. Deliberately, that no sudden motion should alarm Bunny, he lifted the rifle and sighted with care. At the sharp crack of the twenty-two there was a whistle and a heavy crash just beyond a windfall to his right. With a startled exclamation, Spud turned to see a magnificent ten-point buck lightly clear a fallen timber and disappear into the thicket beyond. Well, what do you know about that? Me popping in a measy little rabbit with a big buck standing within twenty yards, he cried disgustedly, quite forgetting that only by the merest chance could the tiny leaden pellet of the twenty-two have much more than stung the larger animal. His disgust was short-lived, however, and a feeling of elation when he found that his aim had been true and in the briars lay a plump rabbit shot through the head. Perhaps there are more, he thought hopefully in the excitement of the hunt, forgetting his sore feet and that he was lost. On all sides rabbit signs were plentiful, and within five minutes he started another from its place under a pile of brush. He whistled sharply as the brown form scurried across an open place for the shelter of a bramble thicket. Instantly Bunny stopped and sat up in the silly way rabbits have when their curiosity is aroused. The rifle cracked again, but this time Spud was in too much of a hurry. A clean miss, he growled as a rabbit dived into the protecting brambles. However, a few minutes later he had another chance, and this time he took more care. With the result, he had another rabbit to keep the first one company. A little later a third was secured, and Spud's elation knew no bounds. Some shootin', three rabbits and four shots, he muttered happily as he ran forward to pick up the last victim. It was then that he heard a faint hello. Cupping his hands over his mouth, he sent an answering shout ringing through the woods. The reply came instantly, and he recognized the voice. It's Pat, just as I expected, he thought, and once more the woods rang with a lone wolf howl. Then, tying the rabbits together by the hind legs, he headed in the direction of the voice, now rapidly drawing nearer, happily thinking his troubles were at an end until once more he became painfully conscious of his feet. Gee whiz, he muttered. Hope camp isn't far away. Alas for his forlorn hope. There was a good three miles of trail to be traversed before he would catch a glimpse of the cheerful blaze of the campfire. Meanwhile, at the camp on the shore of Little Goose Pond, three boys waited anxiously. Spud had not been missed until the camp had been reached. At first his non-appearance had been a matter of good-natured jollying between themselves. For the last mile and a half the trail had been so plain that the various Tyro might have followed it, and they not unnaturally concluded that Spud had noticed this and had dropped behind as in the morning march, for they were all aware of his ease-loving disposition, and they had more than a suspicion that the new boots were growing heavy by this time. Oh, in fifteen minutes had elapsed, and they got no responses to repeated yells, they began to fear that something was wrong. And when at the end of half an hour there was still no sign of the missing comrade, they were certain of it. 
Clinton's last recollection of seeing Spud was just before making the sharp turn after crossing the spur of the mountain. He remembered shouting just after making the turn and hearing what he supposed was a reply. "'That's where the trouble began,' said Pat promptly. "'There's a blind turn, and I'm thinking the sunshine maker's thoughts were more in them seven-league boots of his than were on where he was going, and he went down the mountain. "'Mr. Leader, I suggest that I be detailed to bring the shry to camp.' "'Twill be an easy trailin' by the marks of them same seven-league boots. "'Bad cess to them.' Pat spoke lightly to allay the measure of anxiety of his companions. Walter promptly acted on the suggestion and detailed Pat to start at once. The others were ordered to open up the packs, cut balsam for beds, and prepare the camp for the night. The hunter's lean-to did away with the necessity of building a shelter. When the other work was finished, Plimpton was ordered to map out the day's course from observations he had made on the way, and Hal was sent to try for some fish from the shore, Walter rightly reasoning that if kept busy they would have less time to worry. As Pat expected, he had no difficulty in finding the place where Spud went astray, and it was no trick at all to follow the deeply imprinted trail of the hobnailed shoes. When he reached the blaze trail of the spruce gum gatherer, he guessed right away that Spud had mistaken this for the right trail. He pushed ahead rapidly, only now and then glancing down to make sure that Spud had not lost it. He had hunted through this country and knew the lie of the land perfectly. "'Tis in the old lumber slash the boy is by this time, more lost than ever, and by the looks of them footmarks as heavy as feet be getting," he murmured. "'Tis not far he'll be after going now.' I wonder can I make him hear me. Just then the faint crack of a rifle reached him. Sure now I do wonder, do that be a signal? He muttered. He waited a few minutes, listening for several shots in rapid succession, the usual signal of the lost, but they did not come, and a look of puzzled wonder crossed his face. I do believe the boy be shooting a supper. Sure tis a fine little sport he is, he exclaimed, and then gave the yell that Spud heard just after killing his third rabbit. Just as the sun was setting, Pat emerged from the trail into the clearing by the camp. In one hand he carried Spud's rifle, and over his shoulder were slung three rabbits. Behind him limped Spud. There was a very sheepish look on his usually merry face, and though he bravely tried to hide it, there was something very like a look of misery there also. In fact, every step of that three miles had been one of torture, such torture as only one who has tramped with blistered feet and heavy, stiff, unyielding shoes can appreciate. Walter saw that something was wrong, and after the first greeting sought to head off the chafing he knew was sure to break out. "'Where'd you get them, Pat?' he asked, picking up the rabbits. "'Stop at the butcher's on the way.' Pat shook his head. "'Sure now, are you that short of memory that you have forgotten the fine dinner the cook was after promising us?' he asked. "'Twas the gut-up that he stopped by the way. "'Twas some trouble to make the little beasties "'to sit long enough to take the little lead pills, "'so he is by way of giving a thrife a late. "'Oh, go on, Pat, Spud never shot those rabbits. "'You did it yourself,' cried Hal. "'No such thing. I did it with my little rifle,' "'sputtered Spud, roused to self-defense "'by this slur on his shooting ability. "'Tis a true word he be speaking, "'and a fine little shot he is,' said Pat. "'and seeing he's taken all the trouble of getting them, "'tis myself will relieve him and his duties as cook. "'We is having fricasseed or just plain broiled. "'For myself, I think I'll take them broiled.' 
Meanwhile, Spud had pulled off the offending shoes and angrily hurled them into a far corner of the lean-to. The stockings followed, and when his companion saw the poor abused feet and the bark shins, all thought of chafing and fun at his expense vanished. On each heel was a blister as large as a quarter of a dollar. The tops of the toes were chafed so that on several the skin was rubbed up, and the feet were swollen and inflamed. The first aid kit was promptly produced, and while Pat dressed and cooked the rabbits, with Hal and Plimpton as willing assistants in the preparation of supper, Walter gave his attention to the injured feet. They were tenderly bathed, then, sterilizing a needle already threaded with a soft white thread, he gently passed this through the blisters, leaving a bit of thread in each to act as a drain and be removed when the water was all out. A fence of absorbent cotton, this being merely a square of the cotton with a hole in it the size of the blister, was deftly bound on each heel. The toes treated with ointment, and then a pair of pant socks, chosen because of their size, slipped on, and Spud announced that he felt as good as new. The dinner that followed was a jolly affair, and full justice was done to the bacon and rabbits washed down with hot cocoa. Afterwards, Spud told of his adventures as only he could, graphically picturing his sufferings and his unwillingness to admit even to himself that the fault lay in the cherished boots. At the end, he suddenly grew very sober. I don't see how I'm going to keep on, fellows, with these shoes. I feel like a regular cad. Here I am crippled the first day out. You fellows go on. I can rest up tomorrow and then take the back trail to Woodcraft. Those blasted shoes got me into this fix, but I guess they've left a broad enough trail to get me out, even if I'm not much of a woodsman. I, I, I'm awfully sorry, fellows. I invited myself on this trip in the first place, and now I've gone and queered it at the start. You fellows go on and I'll go back. Desertion in the face of the enemy is high treason, and Private Eli is suspected of intention to desert. Corporal Malone, I order you to place him under guard until we can decide upon a proper punishment, announced Walter without a trace of a smile. Pat saluted, and walking over to where Spud lay sprawled out before the fire, calmly sat down on the unfortunate youth. Orders are obeyed, sir, and the prisoner be now under guard, he reported solemnly. And now what shall his punishment be? asked Walter, still keeping a grave face. "'And please, Your Honor, I suggest that he be instructed to make a little sunshine, and that by way of beginning he sing a solo,' replied Pat. It was promptly voted that Pat's suggestion be put in force, for Spud had a splendid tenor voice. The guard was ordered to release the prisoner and the latter to sing the funniest song he could think of, special privilege being granted him to sit while he sang. At the end, another song was demanded, and then more until Spud's vocal cords were in danger of getting as sore as his feet. At last, Walter called a halt. Private Eli is now restored to good standing, he announced. Spud, he added, there's nothing doing on that little scheme of yours because we can't get along without our cook and sunshine maker. I guess we all know just how you feel, and we appreciate your offer to go back. But forget it. We can spend an extra day here without delaying the expedition any, and have a bully good time in the bargain. By day after tomorrow your feet will be in pretty fair shape, and perhaps we can soften up those shoes so that you can wear them. They'll get easy after a few days, anyway, and until they do we'll take an easy pace and make all the hikes short. Now let's turn in and get a good night's sleep. 
Ed arose and saluted Upton. "'Mr. Leader,' said he, with just a suggestion of twinkle in his blue eyes, "'I would like permission to leave camp at sunrise to shoot a pair of moccasins for the sunshine maker of the Lone Wolves.' Permission was promptly given, though what Pat meant neither Upton nor the others could guess. It was evident that he had something up his sleeve, but no amount of questioning disclosed what it was, and they were forced to turn in, still guessing. End of chapter 6